Good morning. My name is Samuel Postma. This morning, our scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians. Please follow along in your Bibles or use the screens. I will, I will be reading verses 20 through 25 from chapter 1 in the New International Version. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for, wis look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. And today, uh, the title of the sermon is in Latin. Anybody know what this means? Wise fool. Sophos, Sophia, wisdom, philosophy, those kind of words. And moros. Moron, <laughs> I guess it's the one that we all thought of. Uh, we're going to finish my part in Proverbs today. And we're going to talk about how Jesus is the wise fool. And how we are also called to walk in his steps. Thank you for reading that passage for us. I want to begin with a passage in the Proverbs which describes pretty much on the nose Jesus or Christ in the Old Testament. I took this class uh, in 1996 where the professor went through every instance where Christ, the cosmic Christ, or the person Jesus shows up in the Old Testament, and this was one of those instances. I'm going to read to us from Proverbs 8, verse 22 and following. The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works. Before his deeds of old, I was formed long ages ago at the very beginning, when the world came to be. When there was no watery depths, I was given birth. When there was no springs overflowing with water, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. Before he made the world or its fields or any of the dust of the earth, I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary so the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, Rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world, and delighting in mankind. So Proverbs uh, is a book about wisdom, and it insists at the center of it that wisdom is not information. It's not some advice that somebody smarter than you gives to you, but really wisdom is a person. And it's not just a person, but it really is Jesus himself. In the very same way that when we are talking about love, we are talking about attributes of a being who actually is love. God is love. 
God isn't loving primarily. God is love primarily. And he is therefore loving. You and I, we're not lovable primarily, but we are loved by one who is love and what he does, who he is, what he emanates, how he walks and talks, how he exists is love because he is love and we are on the receiving end of one who is himself love. God's isness is love. And Jesus in the very same way is wisdom itself. And creation, reality as we call it, planet earth as we know it, your existence, you as a creature, being able to ask questions about the other creations of God, that's amazing. That you are an expression of the wisdom of Christ is what this passage is saying. You just don't happen to exist through happenstance, but somebody who is wisdom itself, using laws and principles and truths created you to be a reflection of his wisdom. And so you work. There's amazing things about you. You exist in a world that's amazing. It's just crazy. This just this week, I was just invited, I mean, to talk, to think about antimatter because in some laboratory, they sort of mimicked a black hole. Like God in his wisdom Christ, who is wisdom, created black holes. And that led me down a rabbit trail where I had to study what matter is and then what antimatter is and what positrons are and what electrons are and, and how if they touch each other, they totally annihilate each other and gamma radiation is released. And I was going, what the heck is going on? What are these words? It's the wisdom of Christ. Jesus knows these things because he created these things. It is who he is. And we, whether we understand Jesus to be wisdom or not, marvel at Christ by a different name that we call science or wisdom or philosophy or history or literature or theology, physics, architecture. All of reality is a reflection of the wisdom who is Christ. That's what this Proverbs is saying, that he was there. He was before all things, and in him we live and move and have our being. And so Proverbs can say the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God himself. Because if you don't understand that you exist and the very fact that you are seeking wisdom it has to start with an understanding in the isness of God Himself. That's the beginning of it all. And that's really what Proverbs is about. It's ultimately about Christ Himself. John uh, says it in His own way, in this way, in chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of man. This word, word, is the word logos, or the meaning, or the reality, or the substance. Jesus really is everything. He is the isness. He's the ground of our being. 
And one way, I think if we sort of get a little bit less meta, it helps me. So this is a sentence I constructed for myself. Jesus, who is wisdom, is intimately connected and involved with his creation. The reason you and I have breath is because Jesus is intimately involved with his creation. The reason that our body parts are governed by laws at work, that is Jesus' wisdom holding us up by the word of his power. This is what Christians believe, that Jesus is the expression of God and that we exist as an expression of Christ. John chapter 1, verse 9 to 10 says it this way, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. And so what happens when the God who is wisdom comes crashing into a fallen world, a world that has fallen away from wisdom, that's spiraling in some way, and there's introduced into the world this other force called darkness or death. There's, ki- there's a kind of clash. There's, a, there's an inability on the creation's part to grasp what wisdom is, and that's where the passage that was read for us comes in. I'm going to read it for us again with a bit of commentary. Where is the wise person? That's sophos, that word wise. Where is the teacher of the law? That's sophos again. Where is the philosopher, one who loves wisdom of this age? Has not God made foolish, that's moros, the wisdom, sophos of the world? For since in the sophos, wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness or morals of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. And really, here is what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians. Wisdom created the world, but the world that wisdom created is unable to comprehend what wisdom itself is, and we mislabel it as foolishness. When wisdom crashes into our world, clashes with our darkness, we misconstrue, mislabel it, and say, that's foolishness, that's dumb. We're not able to understand it. And so Paul explains why. Because we, as, try, as, as best as we try, we either demand signs and we look for wisdom in quotes. But God's wisdom, here's what God's wisdom actually looks like. We preach Christ crucified. And so we think that wisdom looks like A. And no matter how much we try, we keep mislabeling foolishness as wisdom. And then when actual wisdom shows up, we call it foolishness. Because when actual wisdom shows up, it looks like Christ crucified. And there's no ability in us to understand that the wisdom of God culminates in the crucifixion of wisdom itself, of Christ crucified. And because of that, it's a stumbling block or a scandal 
that's the Greek word, to Jews, and foolishness, that's moros, to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God, that is Christ crucified, is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So when actual wisdom shows up, it looks like weakness to us. It looks like foolishness to us. You know, I was thinking about uh, this scene when I was reading this. Uh, anybody remember the movie The Princess Bride from a long time ago? Yeah. There's this, uh, I think it's a very popular scene. I remember it, where there's the prince. He's in disguise, and there's this enemy of his. And they are caught. They uh, sit down at a table, and they engage in a battle of wits. And the prince sets it up and says, here are two glasses filled with a substance. One of these is poison. One of these is not poisoned. And the poison, it's tasteless, it's odorless, it's, in, it's invisible. And says, you, say you, saying you are so smart, you pick whichever one you want to drink. And the other one, uh, you know, uh, will drink the other. And one of us will die. And then the enemy, he's supposedly uh, the smartest man on the face of the earth, the wisest person. And so he uh, starts debating with himself which one he should pick, right? He goes through the logic. He says, well, you probably put the one that's poison closest to me because it's close and I would reach for it. But you knew I would do that, so you put it in front of you. But you knew I would think that, so you put it in front of me. And he goes on like this for about three minutes, debating with himself which glass is the poisoned one. And then he finally comes to a conclusion using all of his wisdom. And he picks one, and he drinks it, and he drops dead. And the prince reveals, well, both are poisoned. I've been microdosing for years. I'm immune to the poison. Try as he might, he could not understand what wisdom is. To him, to him, what was presented as wisdom looked like foolishness, and what was foolishness looked like wisdom. And so he made the wrong choice. The scriptures tell us that even angels have longed to look at the revelation of the wisdom of God. What is this wise plan? What is going to unfold in human history? They could not figure it out. Even Satan himself participated, thinking that he was obtaining victory. Finally, I get to defeat God himself. He was so sure. And we're going to read later, he would not have done it had he known. But he was fooled by his foolishness, mislabeling his foolishness as wisdom and wisdom as foolishness. Because nobody a or B, B or A, we could not figure it out. It was neither. It was actually Christ crucified. Nobody guessed that the wisdom of God would culminate in the crucifixion of Christ. Wisdom, it turns out, is not just some distant knowledge. Wisdom is not advice. Wisdom isn't information. Wisdom isn't intellect. Wisdom is a person. Wisdom is Jesus, the Christ himself. And, and, 
Jesus, as wisdom, is the hero of our story because we are part of his story. And none of us knew that the way wisdom would present itself as a hero that would sacrifice himself, we never saw that coming. It was not possible for us to understand that. This is the foolishness of the gospel. It's impossible to respect, impossible to comprehend. And the world, through its wisdom, could not know wisdom. And so even to this day, we demand signs. You know, we want our lives to go up and to the right. If God is good, why is there suffering? It doesn't make sense to us. We don't understand that up and to the right is just a placeholder. We're just looking for some sign that God loves us. And if our lives are going right, if we are prosperous and wealthy and healthy, then maybe that's proof that God cares about us. No, that quite the opposite is true. That it's in the poverty of Christ that we come to experience the riches of his love for us. It just doesn't make sense to us. And so it scandalizes us. Consider what these truths uh, that are presented in, in Scripture about Christ have to say about this pathway of crucifixion. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7 to 8 says this, No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden. It's hidden. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Romans 5, 7 to 8. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then Luke 24, Jesus himself asks his disciples this question Was it not necessary? Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer? So I want to ask you, if you are here and you claim to be a Christian, why was it necessary for the Christ to suffer? Why? Why was it necessary for the Christ to suffer? Why did he have to die? Why did this have to be the way? Why does wisdom culminate in sacrifice, in death? in crucifixion. Why today, as Christians, do you believe that if we must preach, we must preach Christ crucified? Why do I stand in front of and before and underneath the cross? Why? I'm not sure, totally, I understand it on an entirely cosmic level, why it was totally necessary, why wisdom had to go this way, why this is wisdom. But I do understand it on some human levels. I begin to see glimpses into why this has to be. Colossians chapter 2 verse 3 says this, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Somehow, in his death, in his sacrifice, in the absorption that is represented in the cross, there is a wisdom that you and I are called, invited to understand why. 
If we are to understand why we believe what we believe, we have to understand the central meaning of the cross. It's so scandalous. Why do we still embrace it? And here's what I have to come to understand as I observe how the world works, how my life works. The power, if you want power, the power to impact a situation or to change the course or to make a true difference, to even save the world, is locked up in the idea of sacrifice. That if you want to make a difference, there's no other way than for you to understand the call on you, if you want to change the world, to sacrifice yourself. That's wisdom. I'm going to explain it to you with this verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Every time you see the word righteousness in one of Paul's letters, substitute the word reconciliation. Because as good westernized Americans who believe really uh, in, the, in the prosperity gospel, we think it means personal righteousness, personal rightness, personal justification. That's not what that means. In the Hebraic understanding of this word righteousness, and especially the way Paul uses it, it means reconciliation. So I'm going to read it again. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the reconciliation of God in him. Here's what Paul is saying. Unless Jesus sacrificed himself for us, unless the wisdom of God culminated in Jesus giving himself up, he who knew no sin becoming sin, you and I and God, we could not be reconciled. There was no way to do that except through the sacrifice of Jesus. So here's how I see it uh, in my life. Uh, I'm going to give you some categories. The first one is relationships. I'm going to start with marriage. Two people, each person with their own views of how the world works, with their own set of baggage from their families of origin, mostly which are unknown to them. But you, the other, has great insight into. They have their habits. They have their ways. They have their human nature. Coming together, now coming together is easy, cannot stay together Unless at every interaction, somebody decides to be the absorbent one. Can two people stay together unless at every interaction, one party is willing to be the absorbent one? Now, that party may believe they are 100% correct, and they usually do. They know no sin. And yet, unless they are willing to be sin and to say, I'm sorry, and to say, oh, you're right. Okay, let's move on. That's fine. It's okay. Unless you are willing, though you knew no sin, to become sin in that moment, you cannot stay together. I'm going to give you a very real-life example. Susie and I, 
first service, we are lining up here to have this meaningful, emotional moment remembering the saints in our lives. We even shared with each other who the saints were. And then we stood in line. And then as we were observing people light the candles, it reminded Susie of something. And she whispered into my ear, Peter, when you left the bathroom, you left the candle on. You could have burned the house down. <laughs> True story. It happened this morning. <laughs> and then I, unwilling to become sin, whispered back to her, but you were the last to leave the bathroom. Isn't it on you? And then she, unwilling to be sin, said to me, the last time you told me, even though you were the last, you, I lit it, so it was on me. And then I, who knew no sin, chose to become sin so that we might be the reconciliation of God said, you're right. <laughs> Listen, a million moments like that in any given relationship. Do you understand? If you insist on not being sin, because in your view, you are not sin, then you will be without a relationship. You know what's the key to staying together? Self-sacrifice. It's you crucified. It's you who knew no sin becoming sin so that you can stay reconciled. Now, I don't understand it on a cosmic level. It's all mysterious to me, but I know that on planet Earth, sacrifice is necessary. And does anybody beg to differ? If you're sitting here and you're not a Christian, and you don't believe in Christ crucified, you at least must acknowledge that you have to be crucified. But how can you be crucified if Jesus wasn't sacrificed for you? What hope do you have beyond the other side of death? Will you just become sin with no hope? Unless Jesus says, it's okay, Peter, you can be the bigger man here because I died for you. My love for you doesn't change. You can say, I'm sorry, all the days of your life. It doesn't mean anything ultimately because I pay the price. You are reconciled to me and your reconciliation with your fellow human beings, it's just a placeholder for your reconciliation with me. It's just an expression of your reconciliation to me. It's okay, say sorry, it's fine, it doesn't matter. There's freedom to die one to the other, one for the other, if Christ died for you. So I know this is true in relationships. I know this is true in marriages, in friendships. I know it's true amongst coworkers. I know it's true among societal interactions. You know what I did yesterday? I spent 45 minutes blowing leaf off my lawn. You know where I blew it off to? The street. You know what my neighbors feel towards me right now? They're being absorbent right now because I haven't gotten to part two yet where I wait for nature to take it away. <laughs> We're 
We're going to break down and nothing's going to work unless there's sacrifice. That's what I know. Second category where we have to be absorbent, whether, where we have to self-sacrifice, is in politics. And that's the end of my second point. <laughs> you fill in the rest. Third category is being a church. I want to thank you so much, and I sincerely mean this. I came to you uh, when I, I really was struggling still to believe in the goodness of God and even the existence of God. I came to you struggling in my faith. I know that sounds funny coming from a preacher, but it's true. And if other preachers were honest, they would say the same. I came to you when my, the way that I was running my life was, was hectic. I came to you wounded. I came to you looking for nourishment and not knowing what I needed, I came to you. And I don't know how it happened because as I was going through it, as I was in relationship with you as your pastor, it didn't always feel so nurturing. It didn't always feel so healing. But today as I look back, I find myself having received healing and growth from you. I grew at your expense. You saw me at A and now I'm at B. And I thank you for being absorbent all these years. I really do thank you for that. And I will always remember this church, Evergreen and her people, for allowing me to have a season of life when I was healed and when I was able to grow. So thank you for being that to me. And I want to end on this uh, statement here. I asked myself, what is the one thing that I wish for Evergreen? And this isn't, this isn't a leadership moment. This is just a confession moment. I'm outgoing. You don't have to do this. You don't have to work on this or ever think about this again. But this is, this is my wish for you. If I can wish one thing, if I could wave the magic wand, what would I want Evergreen to focus on and to be? And I wish for Evergreen that it would be a place where all different kinds of people can gather around the table that is the community of Evergreen Covenant Church and stay at the table and figure out how to love each other even though everybody is so radically different from each other. Because unless you are all absorbing each other, unless you figure out how to be accepting of one another in spite of your differences and because of your differences, what kind of testimony is it to a God of reconciliation? What if churches were just like a first space where everybody agrees with each other? And by the way, that's a fallacy. That's an illusion. Nobody actually agrees with each other anyways. Even two people married together who choose each other can't be in agreement. How can a whole church of human beings be in agreement? The fallacy of the first place. But that's what most churches are. A collection of people who agree to agree on some random things that they feel are the most important things. And unless we agree, we cannot be a church together, they say. Or a second space where people are suppressed and censored and so they stay at the table being polite. It's a club. What's the point of pretending that's a church? That's not testifying to the gospel of reconciliation. 
But I want so badly for this church to be a third space where people from all different walks of life politically can come together. People from all ages can come together. People with different views on every single third rail issue that our society is grappling with can come together and figure out a way to stay together, to love one another, accept one another without having to agree with one another. That's the power of the gospel. That's a testimony to the Christ who died. That's wisdom at work. That's powerful. That's true light indeed. Otherwise, what's the point? Just call it Evergreen Covenant Club. Can somebody who's different, talks different, thinks different, feels different, be with you? Can you eat with them? Can you accept them without necessarily agreeing with them? Isn't that the power of the gospel? That this can be a safe and holy place. I think that's the call for me anyways. And that's the kind of Christ follower I want to be. And thank you for letting me be here. Would you pray with me? For God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God, help us to understand that all of our wise thoughts and philosophies and viewpoints all amount to nothing when confronted by the cross of Christ. It is Christ crucified that this church preaches. And it is Christ crucified that we bring into this church, into our relationships, into our workplaces. Give us the faith and the power to die daily, one for the other, so that we might be reconciled to each other and to you. Help us to be a church that embodies the cross of Christ. God, in the name of Jesus, I bless this church and ask you to make it a safe and holy place. In Jesus' name, amen.